If you turn with me to John chapter 21, I will read from verses 1 through 18, which is the passage in what today's teaching will be, will be based. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. This is God's word. It's an interesting passage. John includes details that normally wouldn't be seen in ancient fictional accounts. For instance, you see stuff like the 153 fish. Scholars have been trying to make sense. If you read, I probably read about nine or ten commentaries on just that number alone. People trying to make sense of the number, and they can't. Everyone's got a different opinion, which means no one can figure it out. Why is it included then? It's because John is saying, I'm not writing fiction. You know, that fictional genre where details like numbers Details like, oh, the net was so full, they couldn't haul it in, it was filled with large fish. That kind, those kind of details, that type of fictional genre didn't exist until about 150, maybe 200 years ago, tops. And so John here is saying, by including those details, this isn't fiction. What I'm telling you right now is not fiction. This is news. I'm telling you good news. This is, this is history. This is an eyewitness account. In this passage, it takes place really just after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had appeared before his disciples just before this, and now he's be appearing before Peter and a few other disciples. Now, remember, Peter and Judas, they had both betrayed Jesus in a very dramatic way, very dramatic way, 
And uh, Peter expressed remorse. He wept. Judas expressed remorse. Judas wept bitterly. Judas actually tried to take it all back. He tried to go back and make good on what he did, but he ended up taking his own life. So really, what's going on in this text, very pivotal moment in Peter's life. This moment is going to break Peter, and it's going to make Peter. What happens here is going to shape Peter for the rest of his life, and it takes place in the context of a meal, which is why we're calling this series Dining with the King, because in these ancient meals that we read about in the Bible, we're going to learn some amazing truths about the nature of Christ, who he is, what he's done. We call that the gospel. There are three things we're going to learn today. The invitation of Peter, the restoration of Peter, and the commission of Peter, which is really our invitation, our restoration, our commission. The invitation, the restoration, the commission. First, we're going to look at the invitation versus really the first 14 verses. I'm going to give you a brief background. We have Thomas, we have Nathaniel, we have James, we have John, we have Peter, right? We have two other disciples. Peter tells them, I'm going to go out to fish. So these disciples decide to go along with him. It's late at night. They decide to catch fish. They're skilled fishermen. At least some of them are. And it turns out, lo and behold, they catch no fish. Empty night. Early in the morning. They've been fishing all night. Early in the morning, Jesus, who they did not recognize, calls them out from the shore. He says, you know, I want you to throw your net on the right side of the boat. And they do. And what happens? Lo and behold, a large number of fish. Large fish, 153 fish. So big that, you know, even though the net wasn't torn, again, a kind of a, a detail that really wouldn't be in a fictional account, um, they, they couldn't, they barely hauled this net in. And when they get to the shore, you know, Peter jumps out early because John recognizes that it's Jesus. Jesus has a fire ready. He's got some bread, fish. He asks them for some of the fish that they caught. They get together. They start to eat. They break bread. They eat the fish. They eat together now. The invitation, what is the invitation? Look at who Jesus calls. Look at who he comes to here. Look who's invited. You have Nathaniel. Nathaniel's a disciple. In John chapter 1, when Jesus calls Nathaniel, it doesn't take much. He goes to Nathaniel, he says, I saw you underneath a fig tree. And Nathaniel, he must have been thinking about something so private, so deep. He's, he's just blown away by the fact that Jesus was pretty much there with him. And he says, my Lord and my God, my, you are my Savior, you are my King. Just like that. And even Jesus says, wow, you believe because I said this. You will see even more. That's what Jesus says. Nathaniel is an easy believer. When we on the East Coast, on the coastlines, look at people who are easy believers, they generally come from the Midwest, red states, the red color states. But it's juxtaposed by Thomas. Thomas is, if Nathaniel's an easy believer, Thomas is a skeptic. Thomas belongs to the blue states. Thomas belongs on the coastlines. Thomas is a doubter to the core. He says, unless I see, unless I touch, I will not believe. We read that in the call to worship. And, you know, we have the skeptic. Generally, skeptics and easy believers, they don't get along. Red states, blue states, they hate each other right? Generally. That's what happens. Skeptics and doubters usually clash with people who are credulous believers. But here, we see them together on a boat. You got John. John is an analyst. 
John is a thinker. John likes to put pieces together. John is looking at what's going on as they're fishing. He's dead tired. Everyone's exhausted. They've been fishing all night. Jesus is calling out, and John is kind of putting some pieces together, pieces drawn from the past several years, and he says, wait a second, that's Jesus. He's putting the pieces together. He's an analyst. Peter, we know that Peter is not an analyst. Peter is not a thinker. Peter's a feeler. Peter jumps. Peter reacts. Peter slices off people's ears with his sword at the instant of trouble. Peter runs. Peter just, you know, is a reactive person, very emotional thinker. And so generally, thinkers and feelers, when they come together in the same room, they don't get along. One's incredibly impetuous and, and, and impatient and impulsive. The other person's calm and too slow, not really in a rush, right? Wants to think things through. They don't get along. Who is in the boat? All four of these types are in the boat. People who generally would not get along are actually together, and Jesus invites not just one of them, Jesus invites all of them. The gospel is interesting. D.A. Carson, a famous commentator, professor uh, in the Midwest, a seminary in the Midwest, he says, the church is full, the church consists, the church is comprised of natural enemies. People who normally would not get along. People who normally, if you look to your right and the left, you'd say, I probably would never, if it wasn't for this church, I probably would never hang out with these people because we're so different. And there's no context by which we would be drawn together. And it's an invitation of Christ. That's what makes it amazing. You know, on one hand, Christianity is a very exclusive, well, at least on the outside, is a very exclusive faith because we say that there's only one way to peace, one way to real life, one way to eternal life, one way to, to God, to have access to God, spiritual reality, ultimate reality, and that's through Jesus Christ alone. It sounds and it seems incredibly exclusive. People, you know, because we're based on that solid truth, that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to true peace, you know, people find that to be very exclusive. They're turned off by that. But if you think about it, historically, in practice, if you look at the church of God, the church of Christ, all the way through the history of the world, the church began by accepting widows, orphans, the poor. They, in fact, they went through tremendous lengths to include the poor. It was very, very intentional. The church throughout history has been marked by a supernatural intentionality that transcends boundaries of race, transcends boundaries of color, ethnicity, language, transcends boundaries of social economic class and education. It started with the very poor and disfranchised Jews and spread through the synagogues out upward into the, to the society of the Roman and Greek empires, all the way up to the emperor who made it eventually a, uh, the official language of the empire itself, the official religion of the empire itself. So on one hand, it seems very exclusive on the outside, but the more you look into it, Christianity is an incredibly, the most inclusive faith in world history the most inc inclusive belief system. There is no other belief system in the world that is, in, is as inclusive as the gospel that invites anybody. It says, come as you are, as we sang today. No other faith in history. Your ability to get into the community, easy. It is very natural for us to not let people in. You know why? Because sin... Ever since the garden, you have Adam and Eve. The moment sin entered into their lives, the moment they sinned, the first thing they did was cover themselves up. They, even husband and wife became alienated because of sin. 
And ever since then, we've had marital problems from that point on. It's just a, a fact of sin in life. It's a truth. It's the nature of relationships. And yet, the church consists of people who say, you know what, I'm going to get in and I'm going to let you in. It's an amazing thing. There's a story of a recent, you know, I'm a Red Sox fan. It's kind of a weird thing because I, I love Philadelphia sports, but I'm a Red Sox fan. Um, and so by nature, if you love the Red Sox, you hate the New York Yankees. And, you know, there's a story about the New York Yankees, one of the recent New York Yankees teams, the, nine starting, the starting lineup of the New York Yankees, nine players, one of the recent championship teams, um, they would show up to the stadium, even though they're coming from the same hotel, nine players, nine separate cabs. You know, they're in, but they don't let in. You see what I'm saying? The church consists of natural enemies. I'm going to get in, I'm going to let you in. And that's all because of the invitation of Christ. In fact, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. We just read that prayer together. We recited that together. It doesn't start with, my Father who art in heaven, right? It's not individualistic at all. It begins with, the very nature of the prayer that we're taught to pray begins with community. Our Father. Our Father. Community. Get in. Let in. If you're frustrated because you're trying to get in, let in. If you're frustrated because, uh, you know, you want to let in, get in. It's coming. The reality, the ultimate reality of the church is coming. It's not perfect. It's not yet perfected. But you can experience it now. That's the invitation of Christ. Now, secondly, the restoration of Christ. The entire narrative, really, if you think about it, a lot of these disciples had already met Christ. Thomas, chapter right before, we read it in the call to worship. He already saw Jesus. So this entire narrative has really, if you look at the way, where the direction of this narrative and where it's pointing, the entire dialogue ensuing after this narrative is really all for Peter. It's been set up for Peter. Why? Why Peter of all people? All the disciples abandoned Jesus. But Peter, his betrayal was memorable. It was recorded. All the disciples denied Jesus. But Peter denied Jesus three times. In the Bible, whenever you see something that's mentioned three times, you know, holy, holy, holy. They didn't have superlatives. Here we have good, better, best. Right? When we say God is holy, 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 it's a superlative. So anytime you see something mentioned three times in the Bible, it really means that it is the perfect version of that thing. Peter denies Jesus. Peter betrays Jesus three times. He's betrayer, betrayer, betrayer. He is the perfect embodiment of betrayal. The perfect example, the superlative example of betrayal. And so, although all the other disciples are broken, Peter is the most broken. Although all the disciples abandon Jesus, Peter knows inside he is deeply, he, he betrayed Jesus to the core. It is such a deeply rooted, deeply ingrained thing that sticks with him. And he's stuck in that. And it has broken him, and it has it it torn him apart. It's ripped him apart. He is very broken. Other people are in shame, but Peter's shame, it, it is, he is incredibly ashamed. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus predicted that the Son of Man is going to suffer at the hands of the teachers and the religious leaders. And, and Peter says, no, never, he says, this will never happen to you. In other words, I will never let this happen to you. That's what he says. Matthew 26, Jesus predicts that Peter, he says, you're going to disown me three times. Before that rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, 
I will never disown you, he says. He says, I will never disown you. So the other disciples, they're broken. But Peter, bold, impetuous, tremendous courage, no humility, lots of fear there, right, that he would not be willing to admit. And so he's incredibly broken. And so Jesus takes this time. You know, look at the love of Christ. Look at the grace of Christ. Look at the patience of Christ. Look at the compassion of Christ. I mean, betrayed to the core by his best friends. Peter was in the innermost circle of Jesus had 12 disciples. Jesus had many disciples. Of them, 12 were in his inner circle. Of the 12, three were his closest friends. Peter was one of those three. Betrayed to the core. And yet look at the grace of Christ. Intentionally going out there to serve Peter, to love Peter. He's setting this whole thing up for Peter's restoration. All the things that Jesus could have focused on after the resurrection. I mean, he, he was alive for about 40 days after the resurrection. Of all the things he could have focused on, he's a busy man. The first thing he does is to restore his friends back to him. It's an amazing thing. If you think about when we're hurt, whenever we're hurt, whenever we're betrayed, everybody here in some way, shape, or form has been betrayed in their lives. Whenever you've been betrayed, as a pastor, every instance of betrayal that's ever come before me, I hear the gossip, I hear the covering over ourselves, I hear the denial of blame and the assessing of blame on something else, defending ourselves, justifying ourselves. That's where we tend to spend our energy in the midst of betrayal. But here's Jesus in the midst of betrayal not venting. He's defending. He's protecting. Jesus Christ, in the midst of your sinfulness, in the midst of our sins, is defending and he's protecting you. How does he restore Peter? He sets it up marvelously. First, there's a catch of fish in this boat, this net, the large haul of fish. It's very reminiscent. John's putting this together because he writes it out here in this book. It's very reminiscent of the first time that Peter met Jesus. The first time Peter met Jesus, he was out ashore, a skilled fisherman, right? And he's fishing all night, didn't catch anything. Jesus calls out, really pretty much the same episode here. And Jesus says, here, what I want you to do is I want you to put your net out into the deep water. When they did, they caught so much, they said that the net began to break, right? And Peter, seeing this, it, was a, it, it blew him away. He was blown away by this. At this, he falls to his knees and he says, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Because he realized the power of Christ, the wisdom of Christ. It, the power and the wisdom of Christ just overwhelmed Peter. It was so, I mean, he's so emotional. He's got so many swings. But here in John 21, what do you see? The moment he realizes that it's Jesus Christ, it set him up. It brought him all the way back to when they first met. It set him up. He takes off his outer clothing and he just heads towards Jesus. You see a very resolved Peter. You see somebody who was once very impetuous now is calm. You see someone who's very impulsive now he's moving towards. You see that? He's changing. He's maturing. He's growing up in a sense. He's becoming more rational. Peter is becoming like John. He's assessing. Peter is becoming a thinker. This feeler, this impetuous, impulsive feeler is processing, is listening, is growing up. The second thing you see is the cold and the fire. Right? It specifically says that it was cold and that there was a fire that Jesus has set up. 
The last time you have Jesus and Peter and the cold and a fire together was when? When Peter actually disowned him. So now it brings you back, it's bringing Peter back to recount and relive this experience where the crime, the three times betrayal, the thing that he can't let go of in his life, very, very fresh. John chapter 18, they asked Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter says, I am not. It said it was cold and they were standing by a fire trying to keep warm. They asked him, wait a second, aren't you, I recognize you, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples, this man that they just arrested, that they're going to put to death? Jesus says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I am not him. In Matthew's account, the third time they asked him, he actually curses Jesus. And at that moment, he sees him. It's that moment that sticks with him. It's that moment that's just ripping apart, tearing him apart, because that's the betrayal. He realizes, this is me. This is me. I'm the one who shamefully said, I would never let this happen to you. And I'm the first one to go. I'm the first one to run. I'm the denying him. In Jesus' face, he's doing that. The third thing we see is the fish and the loaves of bread. Reminiscent of what? The power of Christ. John chapter 6. A few weeks back, we preached on this because it was one of the, kick, it's one of the passages that we used to kick off this whole series. Jesus feeding the 5,000. The fish and the loaves. It's a reminiscent of the power of God. And, and here we have then the first time that they met, the time that he was betrayed, these pivotal moments in Jesus' life, and the one miracle that's recorded in all the Gospels. The power of God, the power of Christ. Why? So that Jesus can beat Peter up? I know there are a lot of times when we feel that uh, we experience a lot of guilt because of something that we've done, and that guilt just breaks you. It just destroys you at times. But notice here, Jesus, you know, on one hand, he doesn't say, ah, Peter, you know, I, I get you. It's cool. We're good. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just let it go. And you would understand this because anyone who's ever been hurt by anybody, that sits with you. You know, the person who's hurt, that hurt sits with you. You can't just let it go. You can't, you can say it, but you don't do it. You can't let it go. And if you've ever hurt anybody and if you've got guilt from hurting somebody, you know it's not something you can just let go. So here's two people, conundrum, because both people have something that's burdening them that, in a sense, Peter cannot let go. And Jesus doesn't beat him up. He doesn't just restore Peter. You know, if you look at the other hand, he doesn't just restore Peter, on the other hand, not, you know, hey, in spite of his broken, I get it, you're broken, you know, this is why I came. That's not what he says. Although it's true, that's not what he says. It's through Peter's brokenness. It's through Peter's weakness. It's through Peter's failure that Peter's life will be transformed. Have you ever experienced that in your life? A moment or moments in your life where you see the reality of your sinfulness so deep that it sits with you and you can't let it go? Knowing you've heard all your life that Jesus is forgiving, that God is loving, God is compassionate, but at one point you experience it. That truth, that rational truth, becomes a personal experience in your life. When you do that, for Peter, this moment is going to change his life. Because on one hand, the brokenness humbles you, and the forgiveness heals you, empowers you. When you hear the invitation, you start to become restored. And we see that it's through our brokenness. It's through our weakness. It's not in spite of it. Jesus doesn't just let it go. It's through that brokenness. You know what that means? You've got to be real about your sin. 
If, it's, if Jesus is going to work through your sinfulness, then you have to acknowledge your sinfulness. If Jesus is going to work through your weakness, we live our lives always trying to cover over our weaknesses. We live our lives trying to outstudy our weaknesses. We live our lives trying to build our resume against our weaknesses. Jesus says the only way you can truly be redeemed and healed is if you, work, if you expose and become real about your weaknesses. Be honest about your weaknesses because therein you will be blessed. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are poor, right? They are the ones who are blessed. He's talking about our sinfulness. God will use, if God will use Jesus' own brokenness, Jesus became sin. If God will use Jesus' brokenness to bring about healing and redemption in the world, certainly he will use your brokenness to bring about healing and redemption to you. You know, in this conversation, what he's saying to Peter is, now I can use you. I will use you, and now I can use you. It's never been about your ability. It's never been about your strength. It's never been about your weaknesses. It's never been about your, your talents. It's about your weakness. It's about your brokenness. It's about your sinfulness. Trust in my ability to forgive. Trust in my power to heal you. Verse 15, here's the restoration. He asks, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Scholars have been debating for centuries what these are because we weren't there. What was Jesus actually talking about? Because it's in scripture. Some commentators re- reference the fish. You know, you got all these fish cooking on a, on, a, on a fire plate and he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than these fish? That doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense to the context of the, of the, of the lesson here, right? Other, other commentators say, well, maybe he's talking about Peter as a fisherman. Peter, you know, you kind of went back to doing what you were doing before you met me. Do you love me more than these? It's kind of plausible, but if you think about it, that's a little bit out of context as well. Some people think maybe Peter's got his friends with him. They're kind of fishing together. They're kind of huddled away, living life powerlessly together. Peter, do you love me more than these? It could be possible. But if you look at the context of what's going on, it's in the context of forgiveness because of a betrayal. Earlier on, Earlier on, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus predicts that he will be struck. The shepherd will be struck. The sheep will scatter. He's talking about the disciples. He's going to be the one struck. The disciples will abandon him. And Peter says, even if all of these fall away, even if these fall away, I will not. In other words, I love you more than these. Now, post-betrayal, Jesus says it. That's what I think he's saying. Jesus asks, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more? In other words, you failed, Peter. You failed. What a sin. Sin is betrayal. Sin is denial. And Peter's the most broken. What does Jesus say? Verse 15, Peter, you failed me. Peter, Peter really in his response, what he's saying is, I know, I know, but I love you. Peter, you failed me. I know. I know. But you you know I love you. Peter, you failed me. I know. There's no defense. I mean, the third time it says he was ripped apart. Why? Because it's reminiscent of the third time. He says, you are the ultimate. Three times you've asked him. 
It says Peter was hurt because it is the superlative. You are the perfect embodiment. Really what Jesus is saying is, Peter, if you take the greatest betrayer in the whole world, in any novel, in any ancient history, historical story, in any account, if you take the best betrayer, you are even better than that guy. Peter's just torn up. His best friend just told him that. He's torn up. He says, there's no defense. I know. But you know. You must know because you know everything. You must know that I love you. When the person that you love the most is the person that you hurt the most, it's going to tear you apart. That's what humbles you. That's humility. That's what humbles you. But what does Jesus say? What does he do? Does he say, and as a result, Peter, this is the last meal you will ever have. That's not what he says, right? That's not what he says. What he says, Peter, you want to get back in? Here's what I want you to do. I've got a series of tasks, and it's going to cost you your life. And if you do it, then I'll let you back in. That's not what he says. Really what he says is this. Peter, you failed me. Peter says, I know. Jesus says, I'm going to give you my treasure. I'm going to give you my sheep. The whole reason why I came, the whole reason why I died, the whole reason why all of biblical history has been written, it's about me and what I came to do, is for my sheep, the good shepherd. Peter, you failed me. I know. I want you to take care of the thing that I treasure the most. Peter, you failed me. I know. So here are the keys to the kingdom. I want you to take care of them. Peter, you failed me. I know. He's ripped apart. Peter, I trust you. I trust you. Each time, he's empowering Peter. It doesn't be, it's not separate from his sinfulness. It's through the sinfulness that Jesus brings true power and true greatness. He's commissioning Peter. That's how Peter knows he's in, because he's being commissioned by Jesus. Commission, commission. We're doing this together. He says, Peter, I have been taking care of my sheep. I died for my sheep. Now I want you to take care of the sheep. Now I want you to die for them too. You see that? All your life, Peter, you've been trying to increase your potential, increase your joy, increase your options, increase your freedom, and you've been doing it your own way, and that's only served to decrease your joy and decrease your potential and decrease your freedom and decrease your options. All those pursuits has led to the betrayal. And that has decreased your options and potential and joy and freedom. I will make you great. I want you to take care of my treasure. Here's my treasure I'm entrusting to you. This is what my forgiveness looks like. This is what he's saying. This is what my forgiveness. This is what my love looks like. You are weak, but you're in. You are broken, but you're healed. You are weak. You are flawed. You are broken, but now you're ready. That's what he's saying. Plunge your failures into the grace of God and he will make you greater than you ever dreamed you could be. What guilt? What forgiveness? What brokenness? What affirmation? That's restoration. So Peter's invited. We're invited. Different people, all different contexts. Peter's restored. We can be restored. That means no matter how deeply flawed, no matter how broken, in fact, the more deeply flawed, a Christian is not somebody who has less flaws over time. That's why it's foolish to cover them over because a true Christian understands that 
as it's not so much that he gets less he has less flaws as he gets more mature in Christ he actually, his eyes actually open up to see even more flaws as he gets older you see that do you understand that and he's humbled and broken by that and that's why a, a Christian who is mature is experiencing the gospel over and over and over and he's commissioned over and over and over and that's why that's that's what powers and drives his love and that's what powers and drives his service that's a Christian that's a service that comes out of joy that's a service that comes out of brokenness that's a service that comes out of humility real humility because you didn't deserve grace you didn't deserve God's love and yet tremendous confidence tremendous empowerment because he chose you he gave it to you he invited you he restored you personally that's why what guilt and yet what forgiveness what brokenness what affirmation that's restoration the third point last point is verses 18 to 19 Jesus says when you were young so now he goes off Jesus is now teaching I tell you the truth that means I'm about to teach you verily verily in some of your Bibles or if you have a really old Bible uh, well it's truly truly if you have a, a, a older Bible but if you have a really old Bible verily verily I say to you right when you were young you dressed yourself you went wherever you wanted but when you are old you will stretch out your hands someone else will dress you and lead you to places you do not want to go he's talking about real maturity in Christ clearly not talking about physical age he says that true maturity is built on a character of surrender on a character of dependence not just acts of dependence but a character of dependence he says you're gonna stretch out your hand you ever watch a child you watch a baby cross the street no you know why because babies are utterly dependent on people who are leading them I got a little nephew he runs around you put him down he's gonna run around everywhere he wants he will run into a street with oncoming traffic because he doesn't know he has no idea his world is so self-absorbed he thinks things will just stop my nephew he thinks that when he does this to you you're gonna like collapse that's what he thinks you know he does this weird thing he goes happy yeah I don't know what that means you know like he makes up his own words and you're supposed to go eh, whenever he does that right because he thinks he has this power to like stop things you know the thing is that's a baby that's a child because when they're young they just go anywhere they want you cannot control them they cannot control themselves he says when you are mature you will stretch out your hands the true maturity is not a gaining of dependence but a not a gaining of independence but a gaining of dependence that's maturity it's not a gaining of acquiring of power but of giving up power the very nature of being led somewhere is something that you haven't been done physically since you were probably three years old a child the very nature of putting on your own clothes is that somebody else will dress you Peter somebody else will lead you where you do not want to go that's what he says true freedom is dependence when you stretch out your hand several things happened one you're saying I'm dependent two you're saying I have no defense when you stretch out your hand you know when you're defensive you're kind of like you kind of like this right or you're like this you're in a defensive position he says when you you're gonna stretch out your hands I have no defense I'm vulnerable to you when you stretch out your hands it makes you welcoming it makes you embracing I'm vulnerable I'm embracing I'm willing to be led that's maturity 
Maturity is not, we're going to go. I'm the leader. I'm going to, because I'm old. I've been here for a while. We're going to follow my direction. That's not maturity. Maturity is, I will be led. I will be dressed. I will embrace. I will welcome. I will open up. I will, vul- I will leave myself open to attack. Jesus is saying, I want you, Peter, to build your life Build the pattern of your life around the pattern of my death. Build the character of your life around the pattern, the character of my death. How does he do that? How do you sacrifice? Look to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. I mean, this is Jesus after he's paid the price, talking to Peter. He said, I want you to build your life, the character and the pattern of your life around what I have just done for you. How did Jesus surrender? Look at Jesus' ultimate surrender. Jesus Christ, the most wise, the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most intimately related to God. But his own life was set up. Through all the books of the Old Testament, his life was being set up as a foreseeing and a picture of what he, he will do for us. From the beginning of time, there are markers and road signs and pointers and, and there will be figures of sacrifice and surrender. Jesus Christ stretched out his hands to heal, to forgive, to touch, to feed. But instead of being dressed, he was stripped naked so you could be clothed in his righteousness. Instead of being led, instead of being a leader, he was led to the cross where he stretched out his hands and he died, the ultimate death. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying, and his arms were stretched out in vulnerability, in in embrace, and yet there was no one to embrace him. He was open to attack and the wrath of God was poured out on Christ and he stretched out his hand, independence to the Father. And he says, you have abandoned me. You have forsaken me. You have rejected me. I am completely open to attack. And the wrath of God was pouring out on Christ. And he says, now I'm afflicted. Now I'm shamed. Now I've become sin. Now I am in guilt, covered by sin. Why? So that you could be covered by the grace of God. So you can be healed by God. So that you can be restored by God so that you could be accepted by God, so that you could be forgiven by God. We can go on and on and on countlessly about the love and the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Christ. He was clothed in wrath. Why? So that you could be clothed in God's love. He stretched out his hands and says, I am abandoned, I'm needy, and I've been abandoned. Why? So that you can experience the embrace of God, the imitation of God. If the gospel is not real, you know, if the gospel is not real or deep, then you will use anything that you've got as a competitive advantage in your life to feel superior. You will use anything and everything you've got. Every asset that you have, you will use as a competitive advantage against the next person, even your friends. Right? You're going to do that. Theological prowess, intellectual prowess, By the way, intelligence and theological prowess in the Bible, you never see anything good written about those things. Not because they're not necessary, but because they're not sufficient. It just gets you a notch to cover over yourself in a way that you're not meant to cover over yourself because you're still exposed, you see? It's like that, I don't know, 
Emperor's new clothes kind of a thing, I suppose. You know, it's like a fake clothing. You're going you're gonna to use your looks. You're going to use your wealth. You're going to use anything you've got to feel superior or feel superior or sound superior. You ever hear, you ever hear people doing that? I mean, it's, admit it. It's the most annoying thing in the world when you hear people doing that, when you see people doing that, you know. It actually looks foolish. There's no, there's no humility. You ever hear someone fake humility? It's like the most annoying thing in the world. You're always going to justify yourself. There's a superiority. There's this ego. You can't forgive people. That's how you know. You can't let people in. That's how you know. That's the marker. You can't let people in. You know, there's always going to be a, a false side of you. This is the end of the fakeness. This is the end of the snobbishness. This is the end of the competitiveness in our lives. That's what the gospel does. You know, when the gospel goes deep, you're going to see the most beautiful, superior, wise, lovable person that ever walked the earth. And yet he's limiting himself for you. He's experiencing the ultimate shame for you, taking the full wrath of God for you, stretching out his hands and saying, Father, I trust you. Now, he says, I, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. And he died for you. Even into death, that's surrender. That's sacrifice. That's power. The power of Christ demonstrated and manifest in giving up. That's the extent of his vulnerability. That's the extent of his embrace. That's the end of snobbishness. That's the beginning of really being able to forgive somebody. That's the beginning of really being able to let someone in. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Will you place, will you plunge your failures and your weakness and your brokenness and your ugliness and everything that you believe is detestable and miserable, including the misery itself, into the grace of Christ, and he will make you great. Do you believe that? Let's pray.